to Mark chapter 1 as we continue our study through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, and we'll read verses 12 and 13. Are you turning there? Congratulations is in order. Miss Judy's told me she's went a full week without being locked up, so I think we ought to all be proud of that. She hadn't been in jail any. All right, Mark chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13. Where it says, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. But he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, <clears throat> as we looked at last week, Jesus had, had been baptized. Uh, the Holy Spirit had descended on him like a dove. The Father had, had voiced, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus had been baptized. He had been announced as, as Messiah. And immediately... After his baptism, it seems, we don't know exactly how much time elapsed, but it seemed like it was pretty soon afterwards. It says that the Holy Spirit driveth, and this word is ejected or threw out. He driveth him into the wilderness. Now, I don't think that Jesus was pushed there against his will. This is just a theory of mine. It may not be true. I feel like that Jesus was being prepared for the final his final trial, the cross, when the Father even turned his back on him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think the Holy Spirit was just giving him a little little precursor to the cross, and he drove him out. And I think also with this, there was a sense of urgency and importance. Jesus was on a time schedule. He had a certain amount of time. The Lord had, had already appointed a day when he would be crucified, when he would pay the atonement for sin, and he was on a schedule. And this was one of the first steps. I wouldn't say the first. He was uh, his, announced his, his, his messiahship and baptism, but this was one of the first steps in it when he was driven into the wilderness. This was part of his uh, preparation for the cross. Now... He was sent into the wilderness of Judea, and it says that he was went into the wilderness where the wild beasts were. Now, this was an inhospitable, barren desert that he was in. And these wild beasts, at the time, a lot of these 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 animals aren't present there today in present day uh, Judea, but it consisted of bears and wolves and lions and leopards and poisonous snakes and scorpions and things like this. Not only was he in a, a barren desert, but he was also had to deal with, with animals that was very dangerous. And it was in this wilderness that he lived for 40 days without food. And according to Matthew's account, understandably, said he was hungered. Now, we're going to refer to Matthew several times in this because, as we said in our introduction, Mark's very brief. He's straight to the point. He gives us two verses here, whereas the other Gospels give us more, and it's particularly Matthew. Now, the amount of time that a human being can survive without food, as long as you have water, 
varies. It's according to your age and health and the condition and physical demands that's on you at the time, how long you can survive. But Jesus was at the extreme end of how long a human being can go regardless of the condition of the person. To not face death or at least permanent damage. You know, we get it in our heads sometimes that Jesus was God, so things was easier for him than us. We have to understand, Jesus was just as much man as he was God. Jesus wasn't sitting there 40 days without food thinking, oh, what a beautiful morning. He just, was just as hungry and just as weak as what we would have been. Jesus, as we said, was close to cellular damage, damage to his organs from not having anything to eat. He hurt him. I can't imagine going 40 days without eating. And not only was he starving, but Jesus was all alone. It starts to play on your mind. And you see sometimes when people are put in the hospital, and I know, especially during COVID, it makes me angry to this day that people were put in the hospital and some even died there without the benefit of having their family around. Jesus felt this isolation. And not only was he not receiving any encouragement, but once again we go back to his experience of something being prepared for the cross when he was carried to trial and even his apostles abandoned him. Even as we already spoke of when he went to the cross, the Father abandoned him. He had to. Now, Jesus spent this drooling time in this deserted place in this wilderness. <clears throat> According to Matthew's account, Matthew 4.1, he says to be tempted of the devil. This is the sole reason that he went. Now, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Yes, he was man, but he was not the seed of Adam. He did not have a sin nature. So any temptation would have to come from an external source. And this source was Satan. And Satan tempted him. And this is not the only time that Jesus was ever tempted. Uh, you think uh, back to uh, in John's gospel, John six fifteen, He had to resist the efforts of the Jews to make him a king. They wanted to make him king right then and there, but that wasn't what he came for. Uh, in Matthew 16, 23, you remember Peter was tempting him to not go to the cross. Not so, Lord. And we know what happened. Jesus rebuked him for, get me behind me, Satan. And Matthew 27, 40, during the crucifixion, if you remember the unbelievers taunted him, if you be the son of God, bring yourself down off of that cross, which he could have easily done if he had chose to. So Jesus knew about temptation. And we find something from these accounts too. Temptation sometimes comes from foes. Sometimes it comes from friends. Unintentionally. I, Peter, I'm sure Peter had the well-being of, of his, his, his master, his teacher, his rabbi, rabbi, his Lord, when he said, no, no, you know, I ain't going to let that happen to you, to you, Lord. He had good intentions. Now, Jesus wasn't going to allow anything to obstruct the will of the Father. And those Jews that wanted to make him king, 
did it out of respect to him. But sometimes the temptation comes unintentionally from a friend. Now, why, the question has to come to our minds, why was it necessary that Jesus be tempted by Satan? Why did he have to go through this grueling ordeal? He was being prepared. We've already alluded to this somewhat. He was being prepared uh, for the days ahead when it would require strength like no man has ever known. Just had a conversation with a friend about this the other day when we talked about how Christian men are portrayed uh, by the world as, as wimps. And so I said, there's never been a tougher man on the face of this earth than Jesus Christ. To go through the night, that night in Gethsemane when he prayed so hard that the sweat poured out of him like blood, that was enough to put you to bed for a couple of days. He goes through this, then he goes through his arrest and his trial where he's beaten with sticks, he's spit on, his crown of thorns is shoved on his head, the, the being blindfolded and beaten, the emotional part of this being questioned, all of these things. Then he's, had, he's beaten with a cat of nine tails that would have killed many people. And then had, was forced to carry his cross until he collapsed up that hill and then to be crucified. Jesus was not weak. He was not weak at all. This require, and then when he gets to the cross, the crucifixion itself is unbelievable to imagine. He went through more than any man's ever known. He went through the spiritual, the spiritual the tragedy, the, the pain of having to go through this. Jesus was being prepared for this. He was tempted. Me and Brother Robbie, we already discussed this word here this morning. This word in the Greek means to be tested, to be scrutinized. This is what the temptation is. There was no doubt after this that he was qualified as a sacrificial lamb. He was an example. This wasn't for Satan's benefit. This was for man's benefit. This was to as a as a example for man throughout all ages, and this leaves no doubt. This man, this God man, was qualified to be our atonement. He faced the greatest temptation that any man could ever face. He was being prepared as a high priest. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews four and verse fifteen. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus didn't only die for his elect. He lived for his elect. Jesus was approached in this weakened state at eight for 40 days. I can't imagine what I would do if I hadn't ate for 40 days. You could probably talk me into anything. But he was approached in this wicked state, and he was bombarded by what the Apostle Paul describes, I mean, excuse me, Apostle John in 1 John 2 and verse 16, where he says, For all that is in the flesh is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's what the seed of Adam, that's what we experience on a regular basis. That's what we deal with. The flesh is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus faced these temptations. These things were present in what Satan offered. Satan first tells Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. 
as we've already stated, Jesus was starving, so he would have been highly susceptible to this temptation. Can you imagine not having to eat for 40 days? And somebody says, look, all you got to do is just make some food. You can do it. I mean, it wouldn't be nothing to you if, if you are the Son of God. Now, I used to wonder this. When the Lord first saved me and I got to study the Bible, why would this have been wrong for Jesus to have created some food and ate it? I mean, eating's not a sin, and I'm thankful for that because if it did, <laughs> I'd be in terrible shape. Jesus went into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit's commands for a specific purpose. It recorded, but obviously he was given a command to fast because we because he did it. He had taken on this task of not eating for fasting for 40 days, and Jesus surely understood the law of vows. We go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verses 4 and 5 that tells us, When thou vowest a vow unto God, Defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow, that thou shouldest vow and not pay. You know, sometimes obedience is not as simple as what Paul described in Colossians 2.21 is touch not, taste not, handle not. Everything's just not black and white. Okay, we've got, we do this, we don't do that. All right, we covered. Sometimes there might not be a specific law or a specific principle to cover something, a certain thing. Where, but we might be convinced, we might be convicted by the Holy Spirit to, he's determined for us to do a certain thing. So we're bound to be obedient to that task. Just like here with Jesus. Jesus, this wasn't something common. Okay, Christians, you have to go out into the wilderness and fast for 40 days. This was not something uh, uh, on the regular, uh, normal agenda. You know, sometimes we feel compelled by the Spirit to do certain things. You know, Jesus said, when ye fast. Like you expect you to fast. We don't have fast days like they did in the Old Testament. Certain days we, we feast and certain days we fast. He said, when you fast, when you feel compelled to, when you, some, we might go for a long time without feeling compelled to fast. But if we decide to do it, that the Lord would have us do it. We need to do it. We need to finish it. We're commanded to look after the poor. But we're not going to look after every poor person we encounter. Jesus, if you're going to have the poor with you always, financially, we're, none of us are able to take care of every poor person in the world. So we have to pick and choose. And sometimes we see a person, we see a need somewhere, and the Holy Spirit convicts us, you need to help this person. When that happens, we need to do it. Tori just took on a task, her and the kids, to clean the church. Obviously, she felt compelled. She felt led of the Spirit to do this. Is this written down in the Bible that, you, okay, clean the church? No. But she felt led to do this, so she's compelled to finish this. And what I'm leading up to here, Jesus agreed to not eat for 40 days in preparation. So he was bound to finish it. This is why it would have been wrong for him to have, have done what Satan tempted him to do. He agreed not to eat. Now, Eve faced a similar temptation, although not in this weakened state, 
Eve didn't have a sin nature at this time either when she was in the Garden of Eden and she did she did violate a written law. I say written. It was, a, it was clear to not eat of the, the tree. And she succumbed to it according to Moses in Genesis 3 and verse 6 where he says the tree was good for food or the fruit was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. In other words, it satisfied her desire for what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the lies, and the pride of life. But Jesus... In contrast to Eve, even in his weakened state, he responded to Satan's temptation differently than what she did. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 where it says, It is written, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So Jesus is proclaiming here, as vital as food is, and it is, we have to have it, we require nourishment, as, as vital as food is, without the bread of life of God, there's no life to begin with. It wouldn't, don't matter what we have to eat. Brother Robbie just spoke here a great sermon on, on the Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in, in John 4. Now, the water that she was after at that well could temporarily stop her thirst. I mean, that's the reason we drink. We get thirsty, and then in a little while, we have to drink again. But Jesus offered her living water that would never have to be replenished. She would never thirst again, which was more important. And she realizes that. That's the reason that she she goes crazy and runs into town and tells tells these men, you know, look, I've found the Lord. The man told me everything they ever done. You know, he's given me. We don't know what she said. He's offered me water that never has to be replenished. And this is what Jesus is saying to Satan here. What's more important, food that's going to keep this soul physical body going, or spiritual food, spiritual bread of life from the Lord? That's good throughout eternity Jesus had, had thwarted Satan's temptation by emphasizing the presence of God's grace over everything else in the universe and when we're tempted to justify worldly things no matter how vital they might seem to be we need to take Jesus' example here and remember what he said Man does not live by bread alone. Now next, Satan, <clears throat> he tempts Jesus by telling him, according to Matthew's account, Matthew 4 and verses 5 and 6, he says, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, he loves this part, Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now Luke places this third in the gospel order. I don't know why. Just giving you a heads up here. Satan is attempting or to have Jesus to, to bow down to the temptation of the pride of life here by jumping from the great heights of the temple. Carried went to the pinnacle, jump off. 
But he starts once again by provoking him with doubt as to whether he was really the son of God. You sure, you sure you're who you say you are. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Satan knew who he was. And when you're talking about a highly intelligent creature, and I don't know how all this works, but with Jesus and being the God-man at this time, but Satan had knew Jesus since his creation. Satan, I feel, walked in the court of heaven alongside Jesus before the fall. He knew him personally. He didn't have any doubt. Think about this for a minute. As intelligent as Satan is, did he think this was actually going to work? Now, I'm not quite sure you are who you say you are. Really? <laughs> you, you think I'm going to fall for that one? This still would have worked on a lesser man. Nobody likes to be ridiculed. Now, I, I enjoy picking and cutting up. That's a man thing. I love it. But with somebody with ill intent, nobody wants to be ridiculed. Nobody wants to have their integrity questioned. And a little prodding can put us on the course for pride, an expression of it. And we're going to sooner or later start to illustrate our worthiness, our superiority when we get our butts get pushed. And this is what Satan's attempting to do to Jesus here. And not only did he, did he try to push the buttons of pride, he tried to reason with Jesus using Scripture as his foundation. And we just read uh, Mark's account of this, and, and, and once again we'll read the, the part that, that Satan quoted from Psalm 91, 11, and 12, where he says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee, speaking of Jesus, to keep thee, in all things, and always, and they shall bear thee up in their heads, lest thou dash, or in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. He said, the scripture says that the Father's going to look after you, that he'll send the angels to look after you, that he wouldn't have your foot hit the ground. Is that true? Are you the Son of God? If that's the case, you could jump off this, this the pinnacle of the temple, and nothing would happen to you. Prove it. Prove it. The first thing that we can see right off here is that simply quote scripture doesn't make it right. I suspect that uh, scripture is, is probably misquoted and misapplied more than it's applied correctly. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. And, and we're all susceptible to ignorance. I, we, we're ignorant of things at certain times. But a lot of times it's to support an agenda. How many times do you see people that couldn't find John 3.16, but they know, judge not, lest you be judged, if they're in trouble with something and you question their sin. Nope, nope, you can't do that, judge not. They don't have any idea what that verse means, but they know enough of it to use it. Just knowing scripture, being able to quote it doesn't make it right. 
didn't didn't that uh, demon possessed girl in Philippi walk behind the apostles and say, "These men are the most servants of our most high God"? Was she correct? Sure, she was. They were up to, uh, an apostle and his helper. Yeah, she was right. But do you think that her intentions was good? I very seriously doubt it. So just knowing scripture doesn't make it right. I've had men tell me things that were going on in churches that I knew was unbiblical. We'd be having a discussion about it, and I said, that's wrong. It's in the Bible. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of things in the Bible, but we have to apply them correctly. And Satan did had, had no intention of applying this correctly. Just surely the Father loved the Son and sent the angels at certain times in this account to minister to him. But it wasn't what meant by the some for the same means that Satan was suggesting here. Now Satan, I'm sure, hoped that Jesus would allow pride to motivate him and to show the world that, hey, I'm the apple of God's eye. That's where we would have handled it. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, I got friends in high places. My father was the king of heaven. He won't allow me to be harmed. But see, Jesus, he went right through it. Instead, he replied with scripture from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. How profound and simple. Jump off this and show the world that you're the Son of God, if you really are. Can't tempt the Lord. We're never to presumptuously assume God's protection on our bodies out of pride. I know I do this with the death, but I love this scripture. I love it in Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought to the fiery furnace. And it said, you know, you bite out of this idol or you going in? And they said, and I'm going to paraphrase here. No. Anyway, our Lord might decide to save us. And he might not. But king, don't matter either way. We're not bowing down to the idol. That's our only God. That's the way we approach things. The Lord might see fit to save me. For this, he may not. His will be done. I'm not going to stand here and tell you, okay, look, I'm one of God's great servants, so he's going to protect me. He might decide not to, which I'm not a great servant either, but he might and he might not. I suspect that the attitude that Satan suggested here would more than likely bring judgment than glory. Lastly, Satan tempts Jesus by taking him up on a high mountain and he's showing him all the kingdoms of the world. Let that sink in for a minute. He tells him, according to Matthew's account, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, excuse me, sorry about that, Paula. The creation was not Satan's possession to give. I, I've thought about this thing a lot over the years. But Paul does refer to him 
to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 as the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Jesus had just begun to establish his kingdom. And except for the, the Jewish believers and the few Gentile proselytes that had, had joined in, the whole world was completely under the influence of Satan. You think about it. This, the believers at that time were a, a minute amount of people on the earth. And, and they've always been, as Jesus said, the little flock. But they were, they were a particularly small group. I mean, nowhere else in the world do they have the gospel. And we understand that all of the religions of the world at that time and still today are all designed around allegiance to Satan, whether they realize it or not. I'm sure if you told a, a, a Hindu or a Muslim or anybody, you're a devil worshiper. No, I'm not. Really? Then why did Jesus say in Matthew 12 and verse 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. You can't get any more clear than that. There's two camps in this world, believers and unbelievers. you either Christ or you're Satan. Now, this temptation right here carried the full weight of what John said earlier, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. This was an offer to be the God of the whole world. You want worldwide believers? I'll give it to you. You could take these few followers you got and I'll give you all of mine and you could have the hearts and the minds of the whole world. You know, other than the temptation to forego the cross, the cross, this has to be the greatest test, the greatest temptation in the history of the world. He didn't offer him North America. He didn't offer him Europe or Africa or wherever. He said, the whole world. It's yours. You'll be loved and worshipped by the entire world. All you got to do is fall at my feet and worship me, and I'll give you all this. There wasn't going to be any doubt. There's 100% of the world. It's like a North Korean election. You're going to get all the votes. All you got to do is fall down and worship me. But Jesus already knew what he was going to tell his disciples on down the road here a little bit. Matthew 60, verse 26. For what is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Remember, Jesus is man just as much as he is God. That starts to carry more weight when we, we start to realize this and to th think about it for a moment. Jesus quoted scripture again. He knew he couldn't divide his allegiance between Satan and the Father. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. But first, before he gets sent out, he tells him in Matthew 4 and verse 10, get thee hence, Satan. Jesus throwed a rebuke on Satan here. He was, he was, Jesus was getting testy, it sounds like to me. 
was that wrong? Is that wrong to get tested? No, I don't think so. When we've been pushed and we're deal, having to deal with foolishness. I get tired when somebody keeps coming up to me with something with some foolishness instead of wanting to have a biblical discussion. They just want to come up with something to to, to stump you or, or just to, to keep a, a argument going. I, I got... I get, I'm like Jesus, I get testy. I've had enough. I don't want to hear this no more. And that's what Jesus said. Get the hint, Satan. Get out of here. I'm sick of hearing it. Let me tell you what my father says. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Well, obviously Satan got the message. Jesus didn't give in to temptation. He didn't give... Satan, an inch of room to operate in. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 4, verse 11, then the devil leaveth him. When Jesus had enough, Satan knew it. And he seen he wasn't getting anywhere with him and there was nothing that's going to work. So he left in frustration. James said, James chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Nothing's changed. What Jesus did still works. We can still draw on the power of the Holy Spirit and resist temptation. But what James said here, remember remember the order of this. First, what did he say? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submission has to come first. We're powerless against the devil. We don't have, as some would claim, that we got the power that we can bind Satan and, and, and we can cast him out. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We can't do anything. And it's also good to remember what Jesus did here to have a knowledge of Scripture. That always seems to come in handy, doesn't it? And not only the knowledge of it, as we spoke of earlier, the application, the proper application of it. See, uh, Jesus used this to bid Satan goodbye. And the same as true today. You know, we can't go to battle without our armor. Now, Satan retreated from Jesus, but he didn't leave forever. He didn't just run off and say, and, and Jesus was done with him. No, he come around. He came right back at different times. He came back. He attempt, he tempted him again and again. I don't know that other than the cross that he ever attempted, you know, the Bible doesn't record it that to this extreme, but he wasn't through. And he's not going to come to us one time and we're going to resist him and pray to the Holy Spirit to get rid of him and, and, and quote scripture in our heads and pray. And, and he's not going to leave and leave forever. He's going to be back. He's going to be back. He's going to be back tomorrow. He's going to be back probably in an hour. Well, that's the reason we're told to strap on the armor of God because it's a constant daily struggle to resist it. Our flesh is enough to have to deal with, but we have to deal with, with Satan as well. But this ends with such a great lesson to me. It says after Satan left, Jesus was refreshed, as Mark tells us, the angels ministered unto him. The 40 days was up. Jesus' temptation was over. He had, had proven himself as a worthy high priest. He had given us an example for all ages. He had accomplished what he'd set out to do. So the Lord sent the angels to fresh him, our ministry to him. I suspect they brought him food. No telling what else. I don't know. Some other comforts. 
But the father fed Jesus, I'm, I'm assuming, when he was weak. Just like he did Elijah. You remember Elijah was pretty much about to his end. And the Lord sent the ravens, of all things, to feed him. And he let him lay down and sleep a while. And then when Elijah got strengthened back up, it was time to go back to work. My point here is the Lord didn't allow Elijah and he didn't allow Jesus to suffer any longer than was required. God's not sitting up in heaven looking at his suffering servant saying, <laughs> I think I'll give him a little bit longer. This is amusing me. No, he feels that. He doesn't want to see his child suffer, but it serves a purpose sometimes. When we're going through things like this, we have to remember, God's preparing me for something. He's, he's, I don't know what it is, but you know something? It's going to last until he says it's over, and he's not going to let me suffer any long, longer than what's required. This is exactly what he did with Elijah. This is exactly what he did with Jesus. He does the same for us that he did for them too. And when temptation comes, we just have to react like Jesus and trust in the Lord. We'll stop here this morning. John, if you would lead us in a word of prayer, please.